Welcome to the Lenses Podcast. We are excited to have Trey and Melody Lovern as our speakers today. We were going to have this live at Shades last Wednesday night, but due to the snow, we had to cancel and postpone. So they're so kind to host us in their studio to talk about sexual brokenness and the church's response. So uh, Trey and Melody, thank you very much for leading us in this very important conversation. Yeah, thanks we're so us. glad that there's a church who's addressing mm -hmm. this important conversation. So thanks for having us. My pleasure. Uh, so I'm going to let you begin, and then as we go, we'll probably start with some questions on the way. Okay. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, one of the first things I want to dive into, you know, there may be somebody listening that says, you know, really sexual brokenness, is it really that big a deal? And and I think we're kind of maybe both sides of that. Uh, some people are like, you know, maybe think it's worse than it is. Some people are like, eh, you know, it's always been around, you know, whatever. We're here at the time of this recording in January of 2018, and so the largest porn site uh, out there has just released every year they release their annual statistics like a lot of businesses do and um, you know since we now have the 2017 I thought comparing that to 2016 because 2016 was pretty staggering and that just kind of helps frame just with some of these stat, uh, statistics you know kind of really where, where we are and as I'm as I'm going through these just thinking about this being kind of a tsunami mm -hmm. and I think that's really where the church is historically the church has been silent like we talked about but it's not like this is just a kind of over there thing that's having just a minimal impact. Um, I would even say that with sex and sexuality, that is a place where uniquely God connects with us. And, and there's a mystery around this and God's beautiful gift that he's given us with our sexuality and, and the framework around that and the covenant relationship of marriage. And so I don't think it's an accident that our enemy is attacking in that very place where we uniquely express uh, uh, the image of our creator as male and female and being coming together in that covenant relationship as one. And obviously we know from scripture, our enemy hates us. He hates the image of God and he can't get to God. So often he, he comes at us. He's, he is a, a lion who is seeking to kill, steal and destroy. And we see the wake of devastation that this, so I thought just going through some of these stats. So first of all, um, again, the largest porn site, this is not every porn site. So the stats I'm about to share is not all porn out there. This is one particular, now, albeit the largest, but not um, but not all porn sites. So at the end of 2016, on this one porn site, almost 92 billion videos were consumed in 2016 alone. Now, for that 2016, that's 12 and a half videos watched for every person on the planet. Uh, just to put that in perspective of how much how much content was consumed on this one porn site in 2016. So fast forward, that's total visits uh, uh, to this site was 23 billion at the end of 2016. So fast forwarding, now we've got the 2017 stats. We're now, it's up to 28 and a half billion views. So in one year, staggering in 2016, but in 2017, Five and a half billion more visits uh, to this porn site. Which we say many times, if that was just solitaire, mm -hmm. the countless hours of just using, maybe spending your time on solitaire, we're looking at, you know, time loss, uh, productivity as far as the business world, I and mean, so many things. However, being that this is pornography, we see the long-term effects as well as the short-term effects of relationships and 
what it does to families and, and things like that. Yeah, I think if that was a benign issue, mm-hmm. you know, we would have a productivity issue right. on our hands. Right. You know, just that much time consumed on any activity, even if it's a benign and neutral. But when you're talking about something that literally uh, scientifically has been proven to reshape the human brain, uh, to rewire the human brain, and to send these messages that is so counter to God's narrative as it relates to sex, God's story that he's writing with sex and our sexuality. Uh, so it just shows that, that the enemy is hunting uniquely in this area, and obviously individuals and families are being destroyed. But just to put it in perspective and more, so in 2017, if you if if this site just started in 2017, forget all those billions of views up until that in 2016, the content that was put up in 2017 alone, if somebody started watching that content, um, it would take them 68 years to consume all the content that was put up in 2017 alone. And so just want to use those two, end of 2016, 2017, just to frame this, that there is an actual tsunami of smut, of, of just a cesspool uh, from everything goes, you know, no limits, no bounds, because that's the big message of culture. If it feels good, do it. As it relates to our sexuality, you know, not just, you know, heterosexual, but there, I mean, there's all kinds of gender identity issues. And, and, and now we've got cartoons and sex with cartoons, bestiality. I mean, everything under the sun is flooding us. Uh, and it's only a few clicks away. So the church being silent has created a vacuum. You know, how do we expect our children to have a Christ-centered worldview when it comes to sex and sexuality? If not only are we not talking about it, if we do ever talk about it, usually historically it's just been don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And so often our kids are left to, or young adults even left to, you know, Google, you know, figuring things out. Or pornography becomes the sex educator, you know, for, for many of these young people. And Jake, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, and, and for those of you, I know many times if we're, if we're hearing that something may not be applicable to us, it's easy to just come check out. So let's, let's not just look at pornography and the, and the issues that we have with the time that's being spent on, on pornography. Let's look at two thirds of all the divorces last year were due to internet related issues. Let's look at maybe Facebook, um, sexting that's taking place a lot with teenagers today. So we're looking at sexual brokenness as a whole. And that could be, you know, you, you know, an individual that may be struggling, but it also may be somebody that is experiencing the fallout of somebody struggling. And yeah. so what we really want to reframe some of this conversation is you're either going to be struggling yourself or you're going to be walking over the course of your life with one or more people, more than likely numerous individuals that are struggling. So we love this conversation that we're actually able to talk about this, that it is an issue, but also what are the tools that the church at large needs to begin to walk through this? Yeah, and I think with you being a minister to single adults, mm-hmm. you know, I know you're seeing this firsthand because obviously our sexuality, as God intended, that shows up and is manifest and is enjoyed in the covenant relationship of marriage. So I know uh, historically, you know, people have gotten married a lot earlier. People mm-hmm. are getting married later. And so I think more important than ever to begin to give single adults the proper framework for. And I know for me, I was a virgin when we got married and I was only 20 when we got married the first time. And being Did a virgin. Did you have to get your parents to sign when you were 20 <laughs> years old? That's so young. I know. 
That's remarkably young. It was, was crazy. And how old were you? I was 22. Really? Mm-hmm. We started yeah. dating at 20 and 18 and then married at 22 and 20. So, yeah. yeah. So, what do we know? I mean, we're going to save Nothing. the world. You know, <laughs> she's saying I preach. But in... Um, <laughs> at your own wedding? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was a thought. Okay. You know? <laughs> we were We were doing everything, the one-man band. Mm-hmm. But... You know, getting remarried, though, and after our divorce, and now, you know, we were divorced being for six years. That was really the first time personally mm-hmm. that I really had to wrestle with a lot of, a lot of this. Because one, when we got married the first time, I really didn't know what I was missing, mm-hmm. you know, but having experienced that. And then, and so I think that's a very real struggle. So, Jacob, I'm just, for you, as you're ministering to young adults, you know, how, because it's easy to say, well, just don't do it. That's right. You know, and, and even there's certain books out there, really popular books. It's almost like if you're single, just there's no place for your sexuality. Mm-hmm. Just kind of put that on the shelf. And, you know, and there's God bless them. There's a lot of people trying, mm-hmm. you know, but that is a part of who we are. So how are in ministering to these young adults? What are some of those conversations sounding like? What is yeah. their struggle? This is a real challenge because there's a lot of different things going on. First, uh, so. Let's talk about 20-somethings specifically mm-hmm. and single 20-somethings who are the ones I minister to. Mm-hmm. The fact that a 24-year-old has come to church is already as anti-cultural as Absolutely. can be. I mean, yeah. we we are competing with sleep and brunch, which, yeah. by the way, our people love sleep and brunch. Nobody yeah. doesn't love sleep and brunch. Yeah. Um, and so already they're taking some real steps. So the fact that people show up means they're ready to have that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. But So the question then becomes, well, do you deal with this in the pulpit? And uh, let's say you're preaching through Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not talking about dating and he's not talking about sexual purity or whatever the Bible may address. So really you're talking about maybe some application in the sermon based on biblical truths from the text. And then in our Sunday school classes and our D groups, that's really where we have to have the best conversation. In our Sunday school classes, we also teach the Bible and the Bible doesn't necessarily address this topic a ton. Now, when you get to Acts, when you get to some of the parts of the epistles, it mm-hmm. sure does. Sure. But beyond that, not so much. So we have to have these conversations in our D groups and have these in um, some personal conversations with the reading people and go there. So they ha- how do we have these conversations it's over a long period of time yeah. as often as we can? Sure. Um, and so it really good is helpful to have a teaching team and people who are willing to invest and others who want to be invested in. Because that's another thing, I think you guys have found this as well, that having this conversation with somebody who isn't interested in having the conversation is not very productive. Yeah. But those who self-select to come and be a part of this, you really uh, do me a disservice if you don't at least address this at some point. Yeah. And how do we make this a positive conversation? I mean, it doesn't sound like this is, when we talk about sexual brokenness, it doesn't sound positive. And what I mean by that is I've just found when I'm talking to my kids or when we're talking to youth groups or college campuses to be able to validate, one, the struggle is real. You know, we didn't grow up with social media and cell phones. And so we don't know what that's like 24-7 coming at you. And so I think being able to validate, one, the pressure that's on, you know, millennials today, 20-somethings. Um, also that marriage is happening a lot later. I think we saw a, a fact the other day or a stat that 28 years old um, for females and 29, 30 for, for males, being able to have those, um, frame those conversations of, you know, teaching them to wait, you know, not just teaching them to wait, but that marriage is happening later. Yeah. And what does it look like? embracing that the struggle is real, but mm-hmm. being able to make it a positive instead of shaming and just don't do it. And it's bad. And, and all that. I think with the world saying, you know, if it feels good, do it. And the church is saying it's bad and don't do it. And we've got to reshape some of the conversation. Why are we saying wait? And why are we 
you know, talking the thing about the things that we're talking sure. about. I think one of the most important things that I've found is as a minister, you have to be able to validate mm-hmm. and understand. So I got married a couple weeks before my 30th birthday. So okay. I'm adding to that statistic mm-hmm. as well. That wasn't my plan. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I was in college, I, was like, I think I'll get married soon. Mm-hmm. I realized now that I would have been a child getting married <laughs> As we were. Yes, right. (laughs) Uh, But I was almost 29. So that really helps when I talk to 20-something say, I know exactly what you're going through. And I'll speak from my example. The the sexuality was a part of it, but it was really loneliness in a lot of ways. Our people are dealing with loneliness Mm -hmm. far more than I think we realize. And so uh, a minister or a church leader who doesn't address that has got their head, whether they mean it or not, it's in the sand. Yeah. Because this is what we're going through. Anxiety related to loneliness, mm-hmm. related to the future. And sexuality is certainly a part of that. Mm-hmm. But it's the quickest and easiest way to mask some loneliness mm-hmm. and to feel accepted. And not to mention the physical enjoyment that comes right. along with some of this. And so we're trying to get to the root of the issue down there as well. And talking about acceptance and, and a place where you can feel known and belong. And, and hope the church is a part of that. And so building structures of where people can come and be known and be heard and Sunday school, D groups, other events as well. And you don't want to talk about here's the structures of our church to address this, but more like give them tools to talk about with right. their friends and other people as well that may go to our church or may go to other churches, which uh, of course many of their friends do. It was interesting, kind of this point a couple of years ago, uh, about five or six ministry leaders, you know, respected ministry leaders around the country, and I won't name any names, but part of their solution with this trend of people getting married later uh, was just beginning to preach, get people married sooner sure. you know let's not talk about you know sexuality and brokenness let's just get people married sooner and that's going to kind of fix the problem yeah. the challenge there is it's like when we don't talk about it our our joke at our parenting conferences we often say it's like somewhere in the punch at the wedding reception mm-hmm. you know it goes from being this negative yeah. thing to all of a sudden now this thing we're supposed to enjoy blissfully the yeah. rest of our lives and we're not properly educating you know mm-hmm. kids um, young adults uh, and and sex you know, I know many of the men that I work with in our recovery communities, the common lie is I'm struggling with pornography, but as soon as I get married, that's going to go away. That was my core belief. Um, it didn't go away. You know, I've heard somebody say marriage doesn't fix our problems. It puts our problems on steroids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really magnifies those yeah. because it shows us how desperate we are for a savior. But yet not having that perspective, it brought more shame mm-hmm. because the belief that I had was, wow, I must really be messed up that now, even in the covenant relationship of marriage, I'm still struggling, Mm -hmm. you know? And so maybe there's young people who are listening here and that's kind of their belief, you know? Yeah, I'm struggling. I'm kind of making it through my singleness, but when I get married, all this is going to just fall into place. And and it's, it's just a common uh, misnomer there. Mm -hmm. And I think as we, as we look at with um, young people, you know, just, you know, I know masturbation, you know, comes up. That's a, a big topic. We don't really talk a lot about it. You know, scripture is, you know, silent kind of on the thou shalt not masturbate. You know, it doesn't, you can't find that uh, scripturally. And I know that's a question that comes up a lot. Okay. What, what do I do with my, my sexuality, this self sex? And, and what, one thing that we teach is, you know, while there is no you know, direct prohibition of masturbation, there is very much very clear on lust and what's going on in the mind. And as far as being able to do that with a, a pure mind is, is very, very difficult. And I love what my friend Michael John Cusick, who wrote a great book on this topic, Surfing for God. I highly, highly recommend that. Uh, the subtitle is Discovering the Divine 
desires beneath your sexual struggle. And it really gets to the root because a lot of times uh, the enemy can attach so much shame, you know, to this with, with arousal and, and things that, that maybe we have those, those views. But he, um, he talks about you know, on, the, on the subject of, porno- or of masturbation that I've never felt stronger uh, after masturbation. Mm. You know, he just talks about it in those terms of being depleted. Mm. Um, and also, uh, I love how he frames it, too, in just this in terms of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. You know, because if we are training ourselves not just to take every whim that comes along and to act on every emotion, then certainly this is an area that we can begin to to exercise some of those muscles uh, because mm-hmm. culture is certainly saying, why do that? You know, why bother? And, and I think it really has to be framed. And, and we do this a lot. I know uh, we encourage people to go back and listen to episode 40, Malia Stevens, where she's talking about healthy sexuality, mm-hmm. because I think to have this conversation where we don't elevate God's design. And frankly, a lot of people in the church don't really have a good understanding of God's design. Mm-hmm. And when you don't understand Yada, this Hebrew concept of connection mm-hmm. and this mystery of a man coming together with his his wife, the two becoming one flesh, that God is there. It's an act of worship and it elevates it beyond where culture is. Basically, it's all about the orgasm. Mm-hmm. It's all about positions and techniques. Mm-hmm. And it's the same uh, cover article on every Cosmo magazine. It's just the rehashing of that same article about every month. And if we buy into that narrative that that's all sex is, then it's easy to take away whether we're, you know, where, wherever we are age wise. Why does, why has God a cosmic killjoy? Mm-hmm. You know, why yeah. does he not want us to have fun? And I think we have to remind ourselves, no, God created this. This was his invention. He, it's a gift. But, and I think the more our young people, the more any of us understand the beauty of that gift, the mm-hmm. specialness of that gift then it becomes very obvious why there's parameters around it because it doesn't stay special and sacred and all the things that it is when it's being shared with everybody. Well, and I want to add just an example of that. I've had a number of women over the years call me and say, my husband's not interested in me anymore, that that pornography and masturbation is what he goes to. And so that, that touch, that feeling of a real human being of stepping into hard places and vulnerability and will she accept me or not is not as welcoming. And so I can just please myself and take care of myself. And so there's a lot of women that, and I'm sure men too, because we don't want to assume that just men are, are, you know, tempted and struggle with masturbation, but there is that I'm totally taking care of myself, self gratification. And when I am stepping into marriage one day, is that even going to be something that's of interest to me if this is what I've been taking care of? Mm-hmm. So it's been an opportunity for us to, as we teach our kids, that the the resiliency and the self-control and discipline and really moral purity um, doesn't stop at the wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're practicing that now because there's always temptation and there's always opportunity. And so we just, you know, we want to set some of those things in motion of just really talking about the practical and also the fallout of some of these things. Yeah. So one of my questions for you guys is talk to a little bit about um, sexual brokenness as it relates to all other type of sinful brokenness and how are they comparable and how is sexual brokenness distinct? Yeah, I think, first of all, the human heart, we have a desire to make a hierarchy of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, sin is sin. And so, but certainly the consequences mm-hmm. of sin, you know, if I tell a white lie, the consequences of that are going to be different than having an affair. Mm-hmm. Now, 
a sin is a sin, but the consequences are different. So I think making that distinction. Um, but I, let's talk about why the human heart wants to make a, a hierarchy. Um, when I first started recovery, I was a part of a recovery community where all men's brokenness, all the issues were kind of lumped together. Mm. Um, as one who struggled with sexual addiction, I felt like the alcoholic was very glad that I was there mm. uh, because I think the human heart is constantly looking for somebody a little bit further down uh, the totem pole uh, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But at the at the end of the day, if we really get to the root of that, it's unbelief because I, I don't believe God loves me as I am. So I need to find some people who are worse off than me because it makes me feel better about me. Mm. And so I think we have to say that out of the out of the gate, because as it relates to sexual brokenness, I think the reason the church has been so silent is it's been easy to just assume, well, we know better. So we'll never be doing that, you know, whether it be pornography, whether it be affairs or whatever. And so it leads a lot of shame because we compare our worst to everybody else's highlight reel. You know, I knew better, but nobody knew that I did have a secret struggle with pornography. And actually, a lot of my performance was so that nobody would ever think that I was struggling because look at all these other things that I'm doing. It's like nothing to see over here because look yeah. at all the stuff over here that's going on. And so I think just a reminder that God loves us where we are, no matter what our brokenness. And and when we do that, now we can begin to experience the healing promise in James 5. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I think with the stats that we started this podcast with, the tsunami that's coming, it's very safe to assume that the people we're ministering to, the people we're running with, the people in our small groups, you know, inside and outside the church, people that are other parents on our son or daughter's soccer team, they're struggling. And the more we can begin to bring those struggles into the light, the more healing can take place. It's the secrets and the shame and trying to fix things on our own. That's what leads to a bigger problem. And so, but but let's be honest, you know, the fallout of sexual brokenness, like I said, the consequences are, I mean, if I, we're all about grace, but if I went out and had an affair, I can't anticipate that my marriage is going to survive, even with everything that we have, that we have gone through. So I think we have to be very sober minded when it comes to this. And I think that's really why this discussion is so yeah. important, because we can't just be asleep at the wheel yeah. with something that. The enemy is crafty and he is coming at us, uh, you know, with this is a part of who we are. We are sexual beings and he comes with a perverted message. And so often it's easy to buy into that message that. And, and so in the subtlety of the way the feels good, do it, you know, kind of creeps in even in marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, Melody kind of spoke earlier about, you know, well, you know, I'm not really connecting with husband or, or wife, but yet I'll just justify masturbation in the marriage. Well, we're robbing the relationship of intimacy, of connecting points. And I think the deeper place is, is many of us don't really know who we are. And so I know that was the first 11 years of our marriage is we defined ourselves by being connected. And really it was an, an unhealthy enmeshment. And we didn't know how to resolve conflict. We just knew, okay, we're, we're having sex. So we must've, figured everything out. Mm -hmm. But like Melody said earlier, there is, there's risk to show up vulnerably like that. Um, and it's easier, frankly, to run a pornography because she's always smiling. She's always glad to see me. There's no risk mm -hmm. there. And so, but, but it diminishes us. It doesn't build us up. Well, and, and to add that, you know, as, as one who's not struggled with sexual brokenness, 
it's very easy, kind of like Trey said, to, to just say, oh, well, that's not my struggle. However, and, and I, you know, if I'm going to be really honest and telling myself a little bit here, I remember when Trey's and my story all came out and we're just sitting in this mess and, and fallout. I literally remember saying, why couldn't you pick food? Mm-hmm. You know, because I could love you at four or five hundred dollars, I mean, four or five hundred pounds. And I just remember food would not impact me mm-hmm. like sexual brokenness impacted me. Mm-hmm. And again, like he went to the supermarket to pick his sin off the shelf or something. But that shows that I didn't know a whole lot. But what the difference in sympathy and empathy as the body begins to minister to the body is you know, empathy, I can go to those places where I too struggle, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's my sin of self-sufficiency or recovering elder brother slash Pharisee or my, my own self-reliance, self-righteousness, different things like that. And I can go to places where I've really been grieving over my sin. And now I can enter in. I'm not entering in from a place of this too is my struggle, but I understand struggle. And so when the body can really begin to empathize with pain and that we're desperate for a savior in different places, then now we really can begin to resolve some of this. And we, and we're not hiding and living in secrecy and all the other things that, that addiction calls us to. Now we're able to really step in and and minister to one another in gospel community. And I think it's important for people you know, in the body, ministers, lay leaders, you know, as we're ministering in this area of sexual brokenness, you know, definitely to, you know, as I said, assume that there's a struggle. Yeah. You know, I think we make a mistake. But that's not rude, you don't think, to no. assume that there's a struggle. Absolutely right. not. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that there are some missions agencies now, and this is really, really healthy, I think, instead of um, asking uh, well, there's, there's an assumption in their questionnaire. They're basically, instead of saying, do you struggle with porn? It's almost like begin to specific, how are you dealing mm-hmm. with this? And I think that's a more healthy place because, again, the tsunami that's coming, you know, it's not an all or nothing. I think we need to begin to understand how are we uh, maintaining proper boundaries around what's going because it's not like you don't have to go looking for it. No. Now. It, it's finding us, whether it be our kids, yeah. you know, even in our adult lives. But I think so having that that perspective and that allows a safe place where healing can truly uh, take place, because I think when we when we either directly or indirectly send this message that people inside the church don't have these struggles, it's only those people out there without the proper knowledge. We kind of lend to this idea that to know better is to do better. Mm -hmm. Well, that was what I was trying to do to fix my situation. I was just trying to find more information to help me fix it. Mm -hmm. And that drove more shame because the more information was not leading to better behavior. Right. But let's bring that back to the gospel. If more information changed us, mm-hmm. Jesus didn't have to die. Right. We're desperate for a savior. And so I think there's an, a gospel opportunity here. I know there is because instead of wringing our hands and being despairing about this, it's such an opportunity and a doorway into a deeper understanding of the gospel. And it's okay to be desperate for a savior today. And I think sometimes we can buy this idea that I was desperate when I was saved, mm-hmm. but the further I get away from that age, whether it be a kid or, you know, we were even saved as an adult, but it's like we have this idea that my sanctification now is a showing God how much I'm thankful for the justification. Mm-hmm. And it's, and we, and we can buy into this self-sufficient brand of Christianity. Right. It's like God's over here, with crossed arms, watching, mm-hmm. taking notes, saying, "Get your act how, together," about yeah. how well we're doing, yeah. and we don't have this 
heavenly father who wants to engage actively in our struggle, yeah. you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And I know same sex attraction is a big, a big piece. And I think historically the church has been so um, scared, terrified about, you know, being gay identified in the church. It's almost like we've not given people a space to struggle because right. there are people and I, there are a lot of men in our group that they didn't ask for it. Maybe they were abused as a kid, whatever, but they have an unwanted same sex attraction. Yeah. Um, that's their struggle. That's what they're dealing with. It's not like, again, they just woke up one day and decided that right. it's been with them. It's a part of them and they need a safe place that they can openly, yeah. honestly talk about those things and people in the church not freak out because what's interesting. And we had this uh, conversation with our guest Preston Sprinkle, um, last fall and I encourage people to go check out that interview uh, healthy conversations with the LGBTQT community what's interesting about that that came out in that um, interview 83% of the individuals who are currently identifying themselves in that community the LGBTQT grew up in an evangelical home mm -hmm. what would have happened if those individuals had had a safe place to struggle mm -hmm. honestly with some of these real questions if they felt like they could bring God into that struggle where so often, you know, we can come with the, the imperative commands of scripture. Thou shall not. Yeah. And, and people are left with, you know, trying to fix that on their own rather than pointing them toward a perfect savior yeah. who loves them, wants to enter into some of those broken places yeah. uh, with him. So I think that just giving that, giving people a safe place. So let struggle. me ask, where do you think that safe place is? If you could dream up the ideal way a church deals with this, not guaranteeing that we can do this at Shades, sure. but just like, what are the best practices? I, because you don't want to do it in the big room. Yeah. You can't, I mean, you can preach on it, but you can't say, all right, who self-identifies? Stand up. You just can't right. do right. that. Where and how do we create these safe spaces? Yeah. Well, I think, I think one of the first places is, is the leadership. You know, that doesn't mean that a pastor or a lay leader or an elder or a deacon needs to say, this is what I struggle with. But when we can begin to open up with our struggles, um, whatever that looks like now, it's starting from the head and we're able to trickle down. And again, the body is able to open minister. up to who that you would recommend they open up to the whole body or, but just maybe not from stage, okay. you know, but we really can implement this, this gospel community. Most churches have life groups and Sunday school classes. And so what does it look like for some of the leadership mm -hmm. to begin to say, this is, this is the argument that my wife and I had this week. And this is where I'm really struggling to believe the gospel. Or we, mm -hmm. we can actually not just say, you know, I didn't read my Bible this week. We can really say, this is where I struggled to believe the gospel this week. And this is what it looks like. And now somebody else that may have that very same struggle can say, yeah, that was me too this week. And this is what it looked like. Yeah. And so again, we're not shocked by anybody's struggle, yeah. but we're able to now minister to each other. And I feel like so many times the enemy has power when we live in secrecy. So what does it look like now that I'm coming out and I'm sharing this within the context of gospel community? Now there's not power there. Mm -hmm. And now I'm really able to pray and bring this fellow brother or sister into my struggle with me. And I don't feel alone. I don't, I feel validated that they're able to hear me and shake their head and, and love me through that. And mm -hmm. now I really feel like this is what, what gospel community looks like and what healing, you know, part of the healing process can look like. Yeah. Well, I know we did, um, thing with the staff there at Shades yeah. called Messy Church, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's messy because it's made up of people. Yeah. Right. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of trying to pretend that our people 
it's clean and neat. Right. And so I think just being able to say, hey, we're ministering to people who don't have it all together. They're a mess. Yeah. We're a mess emotionally. We're a mess, you know, with our finances. We're a mess, you know, maybe of our sexuality. And so growing up, I, and I often talk about this as I share my story, I was a present tense sinner, a man who had a current struggle with pornography, something I knew to be wrong. But sin, if it was ever addressed in the church, it was usually way, way in the past. Mm. Often even probably a pre-Christ, pre-conversion. And so it leads you to believe, what do you do with present tense sin? Um, and I think that's what we've got to overcome. You know, not necessarily we have to share all of our dirty laundry with everybody in the congregation, because that can be tough as a ministry leader, because it's almost like you're constantly on a job interview. Mm-hmm. You know, so how often, you know, and there's a lot of lonely ministers out there feeling like they have to hide because their very vocation and existence is based on, they believe, keeping these secrets. Mm-hmm. But if we can create a culture, and what Melody was kind of alluding to, where from the front, a minister can say, you know, something like, we're all addicted to something. Right. You know, instead, because that's a big thing. Oh, nobody wants to be an addict. We talk about drug addicts and all that. But we are, we're all addicted to sin. Mm-hmm. And, and so being able now to connect our addictions may be different. But, and even using that term, I think even when people, wait, I'm not an addict. Why do we battle that label? Mm-hmm. The reason I battle that label is because I want to think better of myself. Uh, I don't want to see myself as a desperate sinner who today needs Jesus. Well, when we look at addiction as I am looking to something else other than my heavenly father to rescue me, then that's, that's an easy solution. We're all addicted to something, you know, one of mine was performance. I loved for you to say, that was a great job now. And so that just kept me on this, you know, spiritual performance treadmill of just good job, good job, good job, you know, and, so it looks different, but we all are struggling yeah. with something to come through for us. But when we have that culture where everybody is owning their stuff, right. um, it's not, as my, our friends at Trueface say, the room of good intentions, mm-hmm. where we're all hiding from each other, trying to pretend we're better than we are. It's true now gospel grace community where we're all pointing each other toward a perfect Savior. And, it, and there's empathy there because, right. hey, your struggle may not be my struggle, but I know what it's like for a sin to be kicking my rear end. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like that willpower is not fixing. Right. But if here, let's frame the dialogue. What a gift. And, and that's a deeper understanding of the gospel. Because if willpower was fixing our sin problem, again, Jesus didn't have to die. Right. We don't need a savior. And frankly, that's what our flesh wants. Mm-hmm. Our flesh wants to get a clean and neat formula around every struggle. Because at the end of the day, if we're really, really honest, we don't want... Um, to really trust and rely on God to show up, we want to really trust the formula. Right. And, and it's no different than the Israelites. Yeah. You know, the Israelites, God was constantly bringing them to places where they were having to rely daily, whether it be manna, you know, and they were constantly murmuring. Mm-hmm. They were even longing to go back to slavery. God's wanting to right. liberate us. Uh, but it's interesting about God. He never shows up the same way twice. Right. And throughout Scripture, and I believe that is because he knows the human heart wants a formula. Yeah. We really want the guaranteed formula more than we want God. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's easier to trust that formula. And it, we want to be our own God. Yeah. yeah, right. That's the lie from the very beginning. So what does this have to do with, with our sexual brokenness? I think it has everything to do with it. Yeah. And if we're trying to minister effectively in the areas of sexual brokenness without talking about some of these more subtle root stuff and the reason 
that we create this hierarchy and the reason we don't uh, believe fully the gospel. It's a scandal. We talk about the scandal of grace on this podcast all the time. Mm. But it's a scandal, and I need to remember it's a scandal. Yeah. Because when it quits being a scandal, more often than not, that means Trey is thinking more highly of himself. Mm. And I'm, I'm now back into this place of denial, thinking that I can, through willpower, mm. fix my sin problem. Um, I have some really practical questions. Okay. Um, I minister to a lot of 20-somethings. What advice do you give them on dating, particularly? Because we can assume a lot of them are struggling with sexual brokenness in mm-hmm. one form or another while still chasing the fairy tale and the dream of a prince charming and a princess and everything that comes along with yeah. that. And you don't want to rob them of that, but right. you also want to get real for a second. What real practical advice do you yeah. give? I'll well, start. usually when we share our story, I mean, at least with our kids, we can, you know, that kind of helps bring everything uh, to a re- realistic picture. Um, one of the things that, like I said, I've, I'm definitely sharing with my girls, not not that I'm not saying that to my boys, but just, you know, I got married right out of college. And so just being able to, to frame that, that, you know, kid, you know, college kids and kids and singles are getting married later. And so what does that look like? You know, enjoying relationships with both their girlfriends, but also getting to enjoy friendships with guys. Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly encouraging them to have good guy friends that the better friend that they're going to be with their guy company, the the better spouse they're going to be one day. But I think just, again, that validation, being able to really validate, you know, you may be older when you get married. um, So what does it look like? In, in that context, also, you know, whatever the tension is that we're struggling with or, or wherever we're suffering, that's an opportunity for the father to come in and meet those needs. Mm-hmm. And again, mine may look different than theirs, but I think just I, I'm trying to ready my kids that that's awesome if you do marry right out of college. But there's a lot of opportunities like our daughter is a photographer right now and is able to travel. There's opportunities that she is having right now because she's not in a relationship and not dating. And mm-hmm. so we can again, we're not trying to make it a formula, mm-hmm. we're actually able to step in and say, man, that's got to be hard sometimes when all your girlfriends are getting their, what is it called, ring in the spring at Sanford mm-hmm. or whatever, and, and able to say, yeah, that's kind of hard. Yeah. But then she's also enjoying this big story that God's called her to, to, to travel and do f- photography and things like that. So again, not trying to create this formula for yeah. them, validating where they are, and then talking about some of the positives that come from that. Well, I think back to something you said earlier about loneliness. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a key point because uh, we don't want to be lonely. Right. But I think learning in our loneliness to bring our father mm-hmm. into that place. Because if we run to another person to alleviate our loneliness, mm-hmm. then at some base level, that relationship, there's a selfish bent there. Mm-hmm. I need this person to come through for me. I'm lo- I'm looking, I'm sucking life out of them. And I know firsthand exa- you know, example of that because that's where I was. I did not know who I was. As we already talked about, I got married at 20 and I was sucking the life out of Melody. I was needing her to validate me as a man, to cure my loneliness and everything that I felt inadequate. I was looking to her in this relationship. Uh, to be that it was that idol like Melody, you know, that I was kind of addicted to this. And, and there was a very unhealthy enmeshment. And so for us in our journey, it was after the divorce, personally, I had to figure out who I was Mm -hmm. because otherwise I was just going to find somebody else to fill that. Mm -hmm. You know, if I didn't really do the healing work myself 
and go into those broken places. So I think first and foremost, from a dating standpoint, back to your question, is that we've got to make sure that we're doing the work. First of all, giving ourselves permission to go into our own brokenness, to really understand our own family of origin stuff, to understand maybe the lens and how shame shows up in our lives. Because what happens often, and we deal with a lot of marriages, people get married they never really address their own family of origin stuff. They just think, okay, this marriage is going to, let's put the past in the past and let's just move forward. We're going to have this great life together. But it's not that simple. And so I think, first of all, is making sure we're not looking to our significant other as an idol in and of mm-hmm. itself to cure our loneliness. Because God is a jealous lover of our souls. Mm-hmm. And there's some good things that we can run to, but still be idolatrous mm-hmm. in our lives. And and a lot of people who are married, their spouse is an idol. So I think that's the first thing. But then in dating, because for me, I, I realized um, during my single years, just a quick story, I started making a list of what Mrs. Wright mm-hmm. and all of her qualities down to what she looked like, down to um, what she was interested in, you know, and as I looked at that list, when I, when I put it on paper at where I was in that moment, again, this is after our divorce, I realized, wow, the godly woman who does this and is pursuing this kind of story. If she showed up tomorrow, if she's really the woman that I'm trusting God for, I'm not going to be her Mr. Right. <laughs> she got another list, bro. That, that's right. Cause she's probably going to have a similar list. And I don't think that I would qualify. And if I did qualify with where I am right now, I, I wonder, is she really who I'm looking for, Mrs. Wright? And so I didn't know what the future held. I wasn't in a dating relationship at that time. But what I began to, I, I, I began to stop dating and work on me. Yeah. And, I, and my whole goal was I want to be Mr. Wright. I want to be pursuing the big story that God is writing for me because I didn't want to find the woman that I was want to marry or be dating to be the adventure. Mm. I want to be pursuing the adventure and then finally marry someone who is also pursuing their own adventure and then merging these yeah. big stories together. Now, incidentally, I had no idea that the Miss, Mrs. Wright that I was trusting God for happened to be my ex-wife. Yeah. Uh, and that's just part of the beauty of our redemptive story uh, in that. Well, and, and I want to just talk about, I want, I want to really break it down practically. So say, um, there is a girl, she's not been asked out for six months and all of a sudden she's, you know, been asked out. It is natural to make, start blowing that up and, Oh, maybe this is Prince Charming and, you know, and just, you know, really go with that. So I would just say to that girl, you know, it's really, really important to have community because when I get to talk to somebody else about that, that kind of keeps it from being this huge production um, it's very valid to want to be pursued. It's very, you know, valid to want somebody to be in a relationship with, but it would be very easy to put so much stake in that date that's about to happen because it may be another six months before. So I think just, you know, being able to talk about where we struggle, being able to bring other people in that kind of keeps it, you know, from this huge fantasy and, and the Cinderella, mm-hmm. you know, story that I think sometimes we think is, is, you know, the optimal, but, you know, just being, I I would just say for me that being able to talk about that with with somebody else makes it not such a production, makes it not, you know, this is, this is it because we do talk to a lot of young people sometimes and they think, well, if I don't take this, it may never come along or I'm going to be dating this person 
until the next person comes along. And so again, there's opportunities for us to bring the heavenly father into where we struggle and that loneliness and that it's real and that maybe God has a season for you to be alone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what does it look like to run to him in desperation for that? But we also look into scripture. David many times said, where are you? Mm-hmm. So being able to be real in that too, of just God, where are you? You know, I'm created um, for relationship. You know, my heart and my longing to be married one day. Where are you in that moment? And just allow him to to meet us in those places and not have this formula or the solution or this sure. pretty bow at the end of it. I know so many people who I feel as though are doing that right there. Yeah. And then they're going to laugh at the six months because they say, try six years. Yeah. yeah. You know, how do I run towards the father? And I'm tired of that because it's been so long and I'm yeah. open to dating and all this. And just for whatever reason, no one's just asked happened. me out. And mm-hmm. then how, what advice do you give to those people? And then the follow-up to that is, what do you advice do you give to those people's married friends and how they can talk mm-hmm. to their to their to their friends and not just a friendship is going to talk about many things but specifically talking about this yeah i think and and you deal with this i know being a administrator to single adults unfortunately so much of what's framed in our churches is all about families and marriage mm-hmm. and so i think already for a single adult in the church and i've talked to some single adult friends they can feel like an outsider yeah. and almost like they're in this no man's land until they get married mm-hmm. and so i did i first wanted to debunk that myth right that, the, the name of our ministry at one point was called the gap class and it stood for graduates and professionals which is a fine name <laughs> i changed it pretty soon <laughs> Because that is truly how they feel. I'm in a gap, and then I get to be real again once I got a ring. It's like everything is pressed pause. Yeah. And and I think that gets back to what I learned as a single is pursuing this big story. Mm -hmm. Is as a single, whether it's been six years, six months, whatever, and while there may be some inner longing, um, are we pursuing our own purpose? Because God is writing their story. They may not like the chapter. They may be longing for the next chapter. Yeah. Or the lie is my story will start once I'm married. Yeah. I'm like, no, your story starts right now. Like, what is it that you want to do? And what do you feel like God's calling you to? And what is that big next thing? Mm-hmm. Instead of feeling like, okay, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And then again, when mm-hmm. Prince Charming shows up, which he never does, yeah. um, then my life will start or maybe then I'm going to be accepted in the church. So I think, I think the church at large can do a better job mm-hmm. of champion singles where they are and, you know, mission trips and getting outside of ourselves and looking at what, what out, what is out there adventure wise for me right now. Mm-hmm. And then if I bump into Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright at some point, that's great. But my life is not changed mm-hmm. because of that. And I think that's a huge thing yeah. that we can help implement in the churches. Well, and I think for more, a lot of the marriages we, we deal with, they were in crisis. A big, big piece of that is they don't have, uh, they haven't differentiated themselves individually. They don't know who they are and they didn't know who they were when they got married. So like me, I just it, I became uh, Melody's husband because I really didn't have a sense of self. So the, the beauty of maybe having been single for a while, but not missing the opportunity to really have a sense of self. Because having that true sense of self is going to be such a gift when God, if God does bring someone along, and hopefully that's going to be somebody who also has a sense of self. And now you're marrying not because you need one another, because you know you're fine on your own. Mm -hmm. You're marrying because you want and desire it, but it's not a need. And so now you begin to truly choose from a healthy place this other person, Mm -hmm. and you're not starting from a needy, Suck life, and that's frankly where most most marriages start. Is this 
even if it's not verbalized, there's this, mm. I'm expecting, even if it's unspoken, there's an expectation that this person is going to be coming through for me. Mm. And, and not, and I say that not to minimize because it's, it's hard. Mm. I mean, I remember the six years I was divorced, you know, got, I had to finally get to the place where I wanted, I, I, for many years, I needed a relationship. Mm -hmm. The journey God took me on in those six years of divorce is going from a place of needing a relationship to wanting one. But finally, one day, uh, and here in the studio, I've got my journals up on the top shelf. But there was a journal where I finally said, God, you're enough. Mm -hmm. I want to be married. I, I feel like I'm built for a relationship. But if I'm single the rest of my life, I've come to the place where I know and I can honestly say you're enough. And that's what freed me to begin to live my own story. Mm. And and then and then you get to just be yourself. And there's not kind of Melody talked about that so much pressure on that first day. Mm. There's not so much. You're, you don't feel like, you know, other people don't feel like there's this sucking sound. It's like you know, this neediness because we're okay in our own skin. And we can just take a deep breath and rest mm. and trust. God got this story. It's a good story. Yeah. And in his timing, not only is he going to, I'll be married, but it's going to be the right person. And I'm not just settling, you know, because that's the other big thing is getting to level 20 in a relationship. Let's say you've been single for a while, then you start dating. You've got a year and a half invested in a relationship and maybe some deal breakers start surfacing. A lot of people, and I talked to a lot of people who are single when I was single, we we're having these kind of discussions and they were like, well, am I just being picky? You know? Do I just need to just overlook this because every relationship when you get to this level? And I think, no, if it's a deal breaker, it's a deal breaker. Right. And a lot of times I think the reason we're caught, maybe uh, tempted to settle is, again, back to unbelief. We're not trusting. I don't believe anybody else is going to show up, so I better take this while it's there. But, again, if we already know who we are and we're okay in our singleness, we're not going to be tempted just to mm -hmm. settle because everything that we believe marriage is going to be. Because marriage has got, like we've already said, it's got its own series yeah. of things. And not to, to speak to that single person to remind them of all the things that they can do, right. that they can do as a mm -hmm. as a marriage person. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the time that they've got maybe to get another degree or things they can read or things they can go learn, hobbies they can pick up. Mm -hmm. It may be harder Passion. to do. Yeah. And so just if they're, because there's a lot of singles I've found, and probably you as well, is that it's almost like there's that press pause. I'm on pause. I'm in a holding pattern. And then life's going to start. Mm -hmm. And I would say, no, make sure your adventure is now. Mm -hmm. And the person, male or female, that God's bringing to you, God will have them joining you mm -hmm. in that adventure, yeah. not becoming the adventure. Yeah. And I think lastly, you know, for that person's like, okay, wait, you've not told me what to do. <laughs> you know, I need to know what to do. Like mm -hmm. I, I have a tension around this. I want, I've got four single friends and I'm married. So how do I flesh this out? How do I walk with this person? One, there's no fix, you know, to get comfortable being uncomfortable because yeah. it is not fun. I mean, even as a parent walking some of my kids who are single and I want to fix it. I want to go find somebody for them, but that's not what God's called me to do. So what I've got to do is I've got to learn to just sit in the uncomfortable with them and I've got to love them where they are. Um, you know, one thing that I could do is I could host more parties at my house, mm -hmm. you know, where singles can come and to gather but there is, there is not this fix. There's not this one, two, three. But I think the powerful thing of walking the body and, and the body ministering to the body is just being okay, being uncomfortable. You know, we want to offer that scripture verse or we want to throw out that quick prayer because it makes us feel better sometimes mm -hmm. instead of just 
let me just sit in this and this sadness and say, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm here for you. And when you are struggling, you know, I want you to be able to pick up the phone and call me yeah. and let's just sit in this together because yeah. it's, it's hard, yeah. but it really is an opportunity for us to all bring and I find that room. before a friend can say that they have to really believe it right. because the most hurtful things to say, you can call me anytime. And then, Hey, not now or not now or not now. How about mm-hmm. next Absolutely. Month? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And That's I think good. for those married good. people who have single friends is being empathetic and because the single people feel like the third wheel, the yeah. fifth wheel, whatever yeah. it might be. And I remember being single. Most of my friends were married. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden we're divorced and there were some lonely weekends because, you know, I had a lot of people I could possibly call. Oh, they're probably sitting down for dinner. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're probably just tucking their kids in at night mm-hmm. or they're, I, I don't want to take them away from their sure. family, you know? And so it was easy just to isolate. And so I think if you're married and you've got single, just remembering them on the weekends, you know, involving them, you know, speaking to maybe the lies that they're believing that they don't want to bother you yeah. because they're the, the fifth yeah. wheel or I can't or tell you how many times train I go out with, uh, with one other person and we love it. Yeah. You know, there are plenty of times for us to have date time, but we love to go out with that person. And I think because of where we've both been, we have been single before. And so we want to reach out to that person and say, you're not a third wheel at all. Mm-hmm. We'd love to spend time with you. And after like the first or second time, then they're like comfortable and they can do that because they are going to say, oh, I feel like a third wheel, you know, or whatever that looks like, a fifth wheel. But yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, Specifically, the women's view of pornography and um, not only women who struggle, certainly that, but also developing empathy towards other men in the church, married or single. And how do they view that without getting hard hearted, Mm -hmm. especially in light of the culture today where a women's liberation movement is coming back? What's a woman's perspective on this? Ooh, that is a loaded question. You know, one, I will say for me personally, that when Trey and I, when our story first blew up, I didn't, I didn't have empathy. All I, all I could see from a subjective position is this person hurt me and hurt me deeply. And it really wasn't until I began to really unpack my own story and, and unpack some of the narratives that I was living out of and believing from that. When I began to unpack some of those, I began to see some of my own patterns and some of my own sin as that righteous elder brother. That is when I could then step into the story of others, whatever that looks like, sexual brokenness or not. And so there's so many women that I get to walk with who have been, you know, betrayed, but there's also many women that are struggling with sexual brokenness. And because I can go to places of empathy with them, that my struggle looks different, but it's also the same. Now they don't feel shame. They don't feel like they've got to hide or they've got to just maybe share a little tidbit with me. They can actually enter in with me. And so, um, yes, we are in a, in an age where I think women are really beginning to step up and say, this is not okay anymore. But I will say that when we say it's not okay and we're not doing the work to heal, then I feel like there is this false sense of, of, of stepping into those places and without this foundation. And so I would just encourage whoever you are as a woman out there, if you are, if you've been betrayed by somebody, whether that's just a girlfriend, boyfriend relationship, or maybe you have a spouse that's struggling with sexual brokenness, or um, you're a single person, I would say step into the story and really begin to unpack what are the narratives that I'm believing? Am I believing that all men are pigs? You know, my hope is that that's not the case, that no, actually there, you know, we look at two stories in scripture. We look at Joseph 
and we look at David and they handled things differently, you know, but what would that look like if it were me and being able to step into the shoes of other people and say, okay, I can't maybe completely identify here with what that person's struggling with, but I do know struggle. And so really doing the work to heal. And, um, and again, I think so much of this is just empathy, you know, really, really being able to hurt, um, with, with other people. So. To the to the husband who has shared his story and feels so much better, and that also means there's a grieving wife. Yeah. How do you deal with the grief and the empathy at the same time? You can't. I will. I will say this: you can't deal with them at the same time. Um, many times, and that's a lot of times the tension of a wife. Wait, I'm supposed to love my husband, and I'm supposed to submit to my husband, and I'm supposed to be there for my husband, but he is just back this dump truck of dookie and I'm like dripping in it. And so I tell her like if right now you're tangibly and visibly you're in the ICU. When you're in the ICU, you can't take care of anybody else. So, and that's not this, you know, self love type of thing, but it's really like, you've got to heal from the wound. If you, if you went into the hospital with a gunshot um, wound, you wouldn't begin to take care of the person that created that. So heal from those places you know, do the work to, to be with a counselor, to find, you know, to just identify the hurt, where it is, the trust and all that. When you can walk through those emotions, now I can begin to, to, to empathize. Um, but many times we're so quick to forgive. And I feel like a lot of the forgiveness can take place once I've been able to kind of wrestle with these emotions and the hurt and the pain and the anger. There is a natural grieving process with loss. And so when we can actually allow ourselves, which was a very hard thing for me, what does it look like for me to give myself permission to be angry right now? Or to say, I love you, but I don't like you right now because I'm really hurting. That's real. And so when I'm able to go through that, now I can turn my attention toward what does this look like for us to enter into some places and heal together. But this has to take place first. One of the most interesting thing you said there to me uh, in learning about this is that you can't do both at the same time. Uh, I imagine there's a lot of people, women who grew up in the church and know the right answer. Like, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to forgive. And that makes me even angrier. Right. right. And so there is. So you're saying it's OK. Mm-hmm. You're giving women permission to feel one and then right. feel the other. Well, and the Bible doesn't say forgive right this minute. You know, the, the, the important thing is that we forgive. But if I forgive at the, at the very beginning, because I've had ladies say, well, I've forgiven him. And why am I so angry? And they forgave in like the first five minutes. I'm like, what does it look like for you to actually walk through this healing process and, and dealing with all these emotions? And now those emotions are out and you're able to forgive from a real healthy place. You know, that's much more beautiful and what much more received well from him. I think the more that we have walked through places of forgiveness together, the deeper repentance that I've been able to experience from Trey. It's like, you know, kind of like the kindness of the father leaves us, leads us to repentance. Well, that kindness comes from me being able to do the work. And then us being able to go to those places of repentance together. And I think for the guy, you know, he's just, he feels better. Like you said, yeah. he just, he wants her this, to forgive this, her. This, this is, <laughs> well, this has been a secret. Now the secret's out. I feel relieved. And so I think just being empathetic towards your spouse, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a dating relationship. Maybe you just shared with a, with a girlfriend and you feel better, but giving them space, you know, to process mm-hmm. through that. Cause I, I know a lot of guys are like, well, I, I, I was honest. Yeah. You know, and, and or they, it was two months ago. Why are you still angry? <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, you're supposed to forgive. And then we start giving all these imperative commands from scripture that, you know, can then add more pain because, mm-hmm. well, and then I think 
too, a lot of women do, well, I'm just supposed to forgive. And so what we wind up doing is not allowing ourselves to be honest with the emotions. Mm, right. And so that's another way of just stuffing what we're really feeling. And that'll come out sideways, right. you know, if we if we don't honestly uh, deal with that. So for any men, maybe you're looking to disclose. First of all, disclosure is so important because secrets kill intimacy. That's right. Um, and so we've got, we, we long to be known all those years. I wanted intimacy. I wanted to be known, but I wasn't giving Melody opportunity to really know me because I was withholding part of me. I was withholding information because I was fearful that she wouldn't love who I really was. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was, I was um, dictating that we'd never experienced the intimacy I desired because I was not being truthful and risking and, and those that true intimacy demands risk and vulnerability, mm-hmm. uh, but giving her space uh, to hold on to herself. And I think that's where community with other men is so important because when this is the only community we have and there's tension here, then our only option is to be alone and isolated. Yeah. And that's why a healthy uh, community among girlfriends, healthy guy friends, where if there's tension here and maybe giving her space to heal, I've got guys that I can take my emotions to maybe out yeah, of her you can, anger. Maybe, maybe you say something like, wow, she's really being unreasonable here. And they can, they can talk it out within the context of their guy group. And he can really come away with some perspective of that instead of us just trying to figure it out sure. with, with all also, this emotion and hurt. And in her anger, like she may tell, she may say some things that are very hurtful. Yeah. You know, she's angry and she's sending her, you know, out of her hurt, she's throwing some things. Well, I could, you know, after our divorce, I could have said, no, Melody, here's Habakkuk 2-4. Do not you know, talk like that. <laughs> you know, and I could have gone tit for tat, but I knew where that pain was coming from. Yeah. And I knew I'd created that. And so having guys where I can begin to process, but those are still very real emotions. Mm-hmm. It hurt. And so having a place, and most guys, frankly, don't have this kind of community where they can be vulnerable with other men. And not just have a group of guys say, well, man up, dude. I mean, you know, why are you bringing me these sappy emotions? Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing that most men believe. Well, I just need to, I just need to stuff the emotion and, mm-hmm. you know, just take it. And that's what shows up with our heart going underground often. So one other thing I was going to mention that I think is huge and has been a part of our process is really learning about what it looks like to be a safe person. Mm-hmm. Henry Cloud and Townsend have a book called Safe People. And when I read that, I probably read it the first time like 15 years ago, I was very convicted because I thought in the Christian community where you may share this prayer request with me, and then I'm saying, oh, Trey, we really need to pray for Jacob because he, well, I'm really not being safe because you've entrusted this really important thing to me, and now I'm sharing it with somebody else. And so under the guise of prayer requests. Under the guise of prayer requests. And so I was able to kind of look at this list of what a safe person and an unsafe person is. And now I can walk with people and they can share this. It's called the gift of confidentiality mm-hmm. with me. And I can hold that and I can wrestle with the father about what that looks like instead of feeling like I gotta go tell everybody. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about this gospel community and we're talking about empathy. And I don't think we can bring those topics up without saying learn what it really looks like to be a safe person. Mm. Um, because when, when we can, when we can be that for somebody and I actually, many times I've just been able to hear something from somebody and just gone to the father with that. And my faith has grown in watching something play out and I'm not a part of it at all, mm. other than just getting to pray and mm. love and validate and empathize with somebody. So I think that's really, really important. And in the Christian community, especially of just learning to be a safe person that can hold confidentiality um, very closely. Yeah. 
I want to thank Trey and Melly Levern for leading us in this important conversation. If you want more information, what is your website? Yeah, just go to undoneredone.com and specifically undoneredone.com forward slash hope. There's a lot of great resources as it relates to this topic for uh, strugglers, ministry leaders, you know, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, we've got information there for you. Yeah, we're thankful for both of you guys for sharing your story and for leading us. Thank you very much. Thank you.